Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. I want to welcome you on this first episode of the year 2020 and express my wish that you had a holy Christmas tide. You've enjoyed the 12 days of Christmas, I hope. I'm recording this on the evening of Sunday uh, in which the, in the Western Church, in the Latin Rite, we celebrate the Feast of Epiphany. Um, in other rites, you may be celebrating the feast on the 6th of January, uh, in which case, happy Epiphany as this is released to you. But nonetheless, this is a, a great time, the, the time between the Epiphany and the presentation of our Lord, when we can um, think about the infancy narratives and the time when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were uh, a very young, holy family, um, and Mary and Joseph were, were raising Jesus together. So I want to talk about some of those things today, and I'm, I'm going to use the work of Benedict XVI, um, <laughs> of course. I, uh, I probably should just start the Benedict XVI fan club at this point, but I want to talk through some of the things that I learned in reading through his book, Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but before we dive into that, I want to ask you for your prayers. Uh, because I started this podcast uh, middle of last year, and it's been really one of the great joys of my life, just talking about theology with interesting guests and um, trying to spread uh, the news of the gospel to all corners of the globe, quite, quite literally. I mean, this is a podcast that you can hear in almost every country in the world, and that's a super exciting thing. And I've really enjoyed it, and I'm thinking about how in 2020 I can expand this ministry to, um, to other markets, other areas, uh, perhaps expanding to the written word, perhaps doing some film work. Um, and so would you pray with me, please, that God would um, make clear how I can best do that, how I can best serve him. Uh, maybe this is just a desire of mine, but not a desire of his, and if, if it's not a desire of God's, I don't want to do it at all. Uh, but if it is a des- desire of God's, then I certainly want to do it and, and would not be, want to be found not doing it. So please pray with me that God would give me clarity in that. And if you have any ideas about how I can better reach uh, people who need to be reached with these, these uh, messages, please reach out. My email, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, so first of all, uh, you may have heard in the introduction there, I need to apologize. I uh, have a little bit of a croaky voice. Um, my whole family and I were hit by this awful cold um, in, the, you know, in the, the later days of the Christmas season here, and it's really kind of wiped all of us out, and it's been pretty, pretty awful. Um, but I'm now feeling pretty good. It's just that I have this like, really hoarse voice left over from it, so I apologize for that. I have a have my peppermint tea with honey and lemon sitting here steeping in front of me, so I'm going to be trying to uh, draw on that as much as I can to uh, keep, my, keep, keep my voice intact through this podcast. This is a solo podcast, so uh, it's just basically me talking for a while. So hopefully my voice holds up, uh, but I apologize for that in advance. So I mentioned in the introduction there that I want to talk about the infancy narratives of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This is, of course, during this time of the liturgical year, this is a very appropriate time to dwell on the infant Christ and what his arrival means for us, meant for the people living in the region of Judea back then. Um, and to think about what God is trying to show us through his word as it relates these infancy narratives to us. And al- along these lines, the thing that's been most helpful for me is Benedict XVI's work, Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. Now, I've talked about this series before. This is a trilogy of books. Um, the Infancy Narratives one was written the last of the three. The first one was Jesus of Nazareth. The second was Jesus of Nazareth, focusing on Holy Week. And then the third one, uh, the infancy narratives one. Um, And if you're looking to start these, and I highly encourage you to, the infancy narratives would be a great place to start. Not just because they start at the very beginning of Jesus' life, which of course they do, but um, really because it's the smallest one. 
and it's the least intimidating. I mean, I think if you pick up some, some of Benedict's work, for example, the introduction to Christianity, um, it, it's pretty dense, it's philosophical, it's heady, it's not super accessible to the lay reader, um, but these are not like that at all. And so the infancy narratives, which is about 150 pages long um, and just chock full of really interesting stuff, uh, is a great place to start. When Benedict wrote these, what, he was not writing for the academic audience. He was writing for you and me. He was writing for the Catholic. Um, and so he could, he could illuminate the life of Christ for us in a way that it hasn't been illuminated before. And for my part, I can say that his books have opened to me the life of Christ in a way that I never had had happen to me before. Uh, and that's been super exciting um, and just, just amazing. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I can't quite describe. I'm sure you have, you have examples of this in your own life, right? Where you've, you've seen something the same way for so long and then something says something or frames it a certain way and it just opens your eyes and you see it from an entirely new angle. And, and that's how these books have been for me. And so I encourage you to pick them up, but I want to highlight to you five things from, from this book that I think are worth talking about. But before we get to those five things, I want to um, just read to you a very brief excerpt from a review that Father James Shaw, the late Father James Shaw, a Jesuit priest, had in his review of, of these works. And he says, any claim that Catholicism cannot be true must stand the test of Benedict's mind. And when anyone avoids it, he discovers that Benedict has already thought through the veracity of the claim that Catholicism is not true. We see this irony worked out again and again in the volumes of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, <clears throat> and so what, what Shaw is saying there is that, first of all, Benedict is a great intellect. He writes these books not on that level of academia, but on the level that is, that is accessible to you and me. Um, he writes it you know, not, not to the theologian, but to the people who are living theology every day. Um, <clears throat> but second, that Benedict's great intellect has engaged with these questions on such a deep level that people often don't realize this. And I want to take a brief aside here and just point out, you know, social media has been kind of a buzz lately with the two popes, this um, Netflix original that um, purports to show the relationship between uh, then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio and then Pope Benedict XVI um, and sort of imagines a dialogue between the two throughout the movie. Now, I've only seen half the movie, so I will say that up front, but I'm trying to do a future episode of this podcast where I review the movie in, in depth with a, with an, with a guest. I'm, I'm trying to track that, down, that guest down right now. Just as a, a brief comment on this movie, I think the reason why this movie is so dangerous to the modern viewer is that it's completely speculative fiction, first of all. It says inspired by true events. The, the only true events that have inspired this are the existence of a man named Jorge Cardinal Bergoglio and a man named Benedict XVI. There, there was no uh, conversation that happened between them in Benedict's um, you know, summer retreat. Um, they did not meet, as it, as it you know, indicates that they did. Uh, the snubs that Benedict gives towards Bergoglio did not happen. So... It's, it's completely speculative, but on top of that, it, it has Benedict sort of, a, it presents him as sort of a bumbling fool who knows less scripture than um, Jorge Cardinal Bergoglio, who um, has, has sort of lost faith, has lost the ability to hear God speak, as he says, at, 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 at least one point in the movie. And it's really sort of dangerous because, or not sort of dangerous, it is dangerous, because it portrays Pope Benedict, uh, the leader of the Catholic faith at the time, as a man who was having a personal crisis of faith of his own and and sort of, you know, was struggling with his own ability to hear God speak, and as someone who just didn't really know that he had good reasons to believe. And that reality could not be farther from the truth. When you engage with anything this man has ever written, and he's written a lot, um, 60 plus books, and I, I mean like books, books, and then of course, you know, you can go on the Vatican website and see uh, hundreds of homilies that he gave while he was Pope. But if you engage with anything he's ever written, it's clear that this man is one of the foremost intellects of the 20th and 21st centuries. And I say that without any exaggeration at all. And as Father Shaw says in the quote I just read, if you have an idea that Catholicism is not true, 
I guarantee you that Benedict has already engaged with that question, has arrived at a satisfactory answer, and has probably written about it. So the, the fact that the two popes portrays him as someone completely antithetical to the real Pope Benedict is just frustrating and crushing. And I, I don't want to ascribe um, malice where incompetence um, can be judged, but uh, you know, it does make me wonder a little bit about the motives of the producers and writers of this film. What are their motives in portraying Benedict that way? Is it just ignorance? Maybe it is. Um, if so, we can at least correct that. But just with that brief aside, I want to highlight to you five things from Jesus of Nazareth, the infancy narratives. Okay, so let's start with John the Baptist. John is positioned in all the Gospels at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, of course. He's the one who prepares the way. We see prophecies in Isaiah about this. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we read about Zechariah. We eventually get the Song of Zechariah a little bit later in the, in the narrative. But Zechariah is an elderly father, and he's a priest from the division of Abijah. And Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is obviously not a priest because you had to be a man to be a priest, but she is from the tribe of Aaron. Um, so she also is coming from priestly stock. And so I had never realized this before through the text, but this means that John the Baptist, whose father and mother both come from priestly lineage in the tri- their tribe of Israel, respectively, that means that John the Baptist is by birth a priest. And this is actually underscored in the narrative by the angel's instruction to Zechariah that when John the Baptist is born, he shall drink no wine or strong drink. That's a reference to the regulations for priests. You look, look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9 which instructs priests to, quote, drink no wine nor strong drink. And so in identifying John the Baptist as priest, Benedict XVI points out that in this person, in John the Baptist, the entire Old Testament priesthood moves toward Jesus, right? Because John the Baptist's whole point of being born, his whole mission in life is to prepare the way as a voice crying out in the wilderness, which is exactly why when Mary visits, and Mary already has the Lord Jesus in her womb, John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps for joy because he recognizes that his purpose uh, for life is, is there. Now, a couple other interesting things about this part of the narrative. The Annunciation of John the Baptist happens in the temple, and when it does, uh, the angel, of course, appears to Zechariah, but contrast that with the Annunciation to Mary. In the example of John the Baptist's Annunciation, the angel appears, of course, in the temple. In the Annunciation of Jesus to Mary, uh, the angel appears to Mary in a town called Nazareth. And the interesting thing is, that I didn't realize this, Benedict pointed this out for me, Nazareth was nowhere mentioned in Scripture anywhere prior to this. So why is this significant? To quote Benedict, it's because, quote, the sign of the new covenant is humility, hiddenness, the sign of the mustard seed. The Son of God comes in lowliness. So just think about that for a moment. We have what might be sort of a normal is probably the wrong word, but what might be an expected place for an angel to appear when he appears to Zechariah and says, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. In the case of Mary, we have what, what we could probably call a very unexpected place, a place that has never even been mentioned anywhere in the Bible before, Nazareth, the small little town uh, in Judea where uh, Mary is a poor girl, and we'll, t- we'll talk about her sort of material means in just a moment, but she's a poor girl, and the angel appears to her, right? So this is the the sign of the new covenant, this is how it arrives. Not with splendor and glory in a material sense, you know, not, um, not a conquering king in a military sense, right? But rather in hiddenness, in humility, in loneliness. Really important. Now, back to this enunciation of John. Um, <clears throat> this enunciation of John is interesting because Zechariah, we were told, is an elderly man, probably about 80 years old. His wife also is elderly. They did not think that they would have a son. And yet when the angel says this to them, um, 
it shouldn't be totally surprising because this is following a rich lineage of biblical stories in which this happens. Think about Sarah giving birth to Isaac or Hannah giving birth to Samuel. And the arrival of, the, of John the Baptist fills the kind of archetype of the expectant prophet. Look at Malachi 3.23 that looks like um, it's kind of a prefiguration of John the Baptist as an Elijah figure. Um, and the book of Daniel contains another prophecy that Zechariah would have understood, that Gabriel will appear. This is Daniel chapter 9, quote, at the time of evening sacrifice, which is precisely when Zechariah is offering the evening sacrifice when the angel appears. But Zechariah still is incredulous. He doesn't believe it, right? Yet the angel then identifies himself as Gabriel. Now, this hidden event, Benedict says, quote, the hidden event that takes place during Zechariah's evening sacrifice, unnoticed by the vast world public, in reality ushers in the eschatological hour, the hour of salvation. So this, this, um, this small little moment in the temple during the evening sacrifice while Zechariah offering, is offering the evening sacrifice, um, despite the fact that Zechariah doesn't believe it, fulfills a number, number one, a number of prophecies from the Old Testament, but also is kind of the final fulfillment of all of these types, these Old Testament types of the older woman who thought she was barren, did not think she would have any children, then having a child. And this moment is what sets us up for the eschatological hour, the hour of salvation. And that's where the Annunciation of Jesus comes in. So that's the John the Baptist discussion. Now let's talk about the Annunciation. Now when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, he says what is commonly translated as hail. This is super interesting. And that's how we, we translate it now in most of our translations. But it would be actually better translated, apparently, to uh, English as rejoice. And this word, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, but the word here is kyre. Um, in this, it's the same word that the angels use when they bring the shepherds good news of a great joy. So when, the, after, when Jesus is born and the, she- and the angels go out to the shepherds in the fields and they say, you know, behold, we bring you good news of a great joy. Um, that joy word is the same word that Gabriel says to Mary. When he says, Hail, Mary, the Lord is with you. Hail, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. What he's really saying is rejoice. We kind of lose that in our modern rendering of hail. But this is interesting too. That greeting that the angel gives to Mary, that echoes Old Testament prophecy. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3. Rejoice, daughter of Zion, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And here's the thing that, that gives me chills when I, uh, when I read this in the book by Benedict. That passage from Zephaniah, literally translates to, not the Lord is in your midst, but the Lord is in your womb. And so when Gabriel echoes this to Mary, the meaning is clear. He's saying, rejoice, daughter of Zion, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your womb, just like that prophecy in Zephaniah is saying. Really, really cool. And now when Gabriel says the power of the most high will overshadow you, the text here is referencing the sacred cloud called the Shekinah that was the visible sign of God's presence in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. That sacred cloud and when it was in the tabernacle, pointed to, the, to God's presence there in the sanctuary of the tabernacle, right? Where the tabernacle was, when, this, when the sacred cloud was in the sanctuary, that signified the presence of God. Well, when the power of the Most High overshadows Mary, like the, the Shekinah that's being referenced there, points to Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, right? In other words, that sign now says that God is here. At the moment of the Annunciation, when the um, when the Most High overshadows Mary, that Shekinah is saying God is here. Benedict says, quote, as God's living tent in which he chooses to dwell among men in a new way. So Mary is the new Ark, the new, the new Ark of the Covenant, the new um, tabernacle, the new sanctuary, etc. She is where God is dwelling. 
And when Mary ponders all these things, after the angel announces it to her and says, let it be to me according to your word, she is freely offering a yes to the creator of the universe. Universe. Benedict writes, quote, it is the moment of free, humble, yet magnanimous obedience in which the loftiest choice of human freedom is made. End quote. Now, the fathers of the church said that Mary conceived through the ear, through her ear, which is to say through her hearing. And so through the hearing of Mary, through her obedience, the word, the logos, entered into her and became fruitful in her. I want to talk about this logos idea in just a moment, but, but not quite yet. We'll get there. Just for now, remember that the word, right, the, the word came to Mary and through hearing, through her ear, um, that word entered into her and became fruitful in her. Now, there's a nice portion of this book, too, where Benedict talks at length about the historicity of the virgin birth. Contra today's modern critics, who write that, that this virgin birth can be best understood as yet another ancient myth, they point out there are some other parallels in Greco-Roman antiquity. Look at the uh, lives of the pharaohs. There are these stories about God, gods coming to earth and you know, fornicating with uh, female women um, and creating sort of these like god-men offspring, etc. Right? This is just another tale just like that. It's all sort of in the same genre, et cetera. Okay. That is the sort of modern like, textual criticism approach to this. Um, more skeptically, you'll find people who just say, this is just ridiculous. Obviously, there can be no virgin birth. Humans are sexual, not asexual. Mary could not have been a virgin in order to give birth, right? Um, but, but Benedict says, okay, look, to be a Catholic is to identify with the creeds. And, and uh, the scriptures clearly say that Mary was a virgin, and that she conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and on top of that, Benedict says, there are no real parallels between the Christian narrative and these other ancient stories, you know, about gods coming to earth, etc. Um, he says, there, the product is a sort of demigod, some sort of mixture of God and man. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's a bad thing. But in the Christian example, there is no demigod, there is no mixture of God and man. There is rather one person, Jesus Christ, with two natures, fully God and fully man, without confusion or separation, right? So rather than being an, a mixture, rather than being a demigod, this is God, fully God, fully incarnate as a man, right? So one person, two natures, fully God and fully man without confusion or separation. The Christian narrative is totally new, totally distinct, totally real. And Benedict says, and, and pulls no punches here. He says, quote, is what we profess in the creed true then? And then he quotes the part of the creed uh, that references the virgin birth. And he says, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Take that, postmodern scholars. Okay, now let's talk about the nativity scene a little bit. Now, when we talk about the nativity scene, the historical context of Jesus' birth is very important here. At the time, Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. He rules an empire that represents for the first time a political entity that spans the known globe. This is the first time in history that the known globe is spanned by one political entity. Now, only now, when there's this sort of commonality of law and property on a large scale, and when a universal language, by, by the way, I'm sorry, this is, I'm quoting Benedict right here, only now, when there's a commonality of law and property on a large scale, and when a universal language has made it possible for a cultural community to trade in ideas and goods, only now can a message of universal salvation, a universal savior, enter the world. It is indeed the fullness of time, end quote. Another interesting thing here. I said Caesar Augustus is the emperor. Augustus was a title that the Roman Senate gave to Caesar, and that Augustus means worthy of adoration. 
So in a certain sense, Caesar Augustus is a prefiguration of Christ. Now, obviously, we're not talking about like the virtues of his life or anything like that. But what I'm saying is at this time when Jesus, the little infant Jesus was born in Bethlehem, at this time, there was a man who the, the Roman Senate had deemed worthy of adoration and had given a title to, who was who, you know, as, as someone, quote, worthy of adoration, he, had, he was sort of a quasi-theological figure. He was the leader of the world in a political sense. And he brought about what we call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Because his empire spanned the known globe, uh, you know, war was, was rarely fought. And Roman figures of his day actually associated his birthday, the birthday of Caesar Augustus, astrologically with universal peace. So at this time that Jesus is coming into the world, there is a ruler, political ruler, over what is essentially the known world at that time. And uh, people associate him with universal peace. And now we come to the actual birth in Bethlehem. And this birth takes place, of course, not in the emperor's palace, but in a stable. And why does it take place in a stable? Because there's no room for the holy family in the inn. And this reflects a larger reality, of course. Look at John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. Right? So um, Joseph, of course, from Bethlehem, that's why they're traveling back to Bethlehem for the census. Um, <clears throat> from, from, Joseph was from Bethlehem originally, lived in Nazareth, but from Bethlehem, Bethlehem originally. So going back to Bethlehem for the census, and Jesus, uh, of course, still in the womb of Mary, you know, comes to his own people, and his own people receive him not. So where does he go? He has to go to a stable to be born. Benedict writes, quote, From the moment of his birth, Jesus belongs outside the realm of what is important and powerful in worldly terms. Yet it is this unimportant and powerless child that proves to be the truly powerful one, the one on whom ultimately everything depends. Now, this is interesting, too. We often think of Jesus as being born in a small little wooden shack housing animals, maybe just kind of on the outskirts of the city, maybe close to the inn where they were turned away. And it's a little, you know, wooden, wooden uh, lean-to. There are some cattle lowing around. There's some hay on the ground, etc. A lot of that picture may be accurate. But in that day, Benedict points out, in that area, specifically around Bethlehem, it was not at all uncommon for people to shelter their livestock in caves on the outskirts of the city. So that kind of changes things a little bit. Rather than being born in the city, or just on the immediate outskirts, rather, Jesus is now being born in a cave. And it also opens up all kinds of really interesting questions, right, about how the birth of Jesus in a cave could foreshadow the eventual resurrection of Jesus from the tomb, right? Because Jesus is born in a cave and Jesus is buried in the cave, right? And Jesus emerges from the cave as an infant, uh, the infant Jesus fully incarnate uh, to us. And Jesus emerges from the tomb uh, as the resurrected, as, <clears throat> excuse me, as the resurrected Jesus. Super cool. And actually, if you look at the writings of the Church Fathers as early as Justin Martyr and Origen, we find very, uh, very alive and well this tradition of Jesus being born in a cave. So um, this is not something you have to believe, of course, but this is a very intriguing possibility, and I find it a pretty compelling and interesting theological idea. Now, what do we have going on in that cave? Well, we, uh, we see Mary giving birth to Jesus. She wraps him in swaddling clothes, and the interesting thing is the swaddling of clothes prefigures Jesus being um, wrapped in bandages at the time of his death. And so in that sense, we have baby Jesus wrapped in bandages in the manger, and then we have, you know, um, Jesus the man uh, wrapped in bandages and put in the tomb. And so we see sort of the, uh, the, the prefiguring of that moment, and in that moment we see the manger as prefiguring a kind of altar, uh, as Benedict writes. And then the, the manger, of course, we, we often sort of gloss over this, but the manger, of course, is not just it's not a crib, it's, it's used to feed animals. And so Jesus, uh, as Benedict writes, is the true bread come down from heaven. 
situated between, as most paintings depict, the ox and the ass. The ox and the ass comes from um, a reference, uh, uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 1 that talks about the, uh, the ox and the ass. Um, and it also comes from Habakkuk 3.2, which talks about how um, Jesus will be recognized, quote, in the midst of two living creatures, which is really cool. Now, that, that specific reference is probably a reference to the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark, you have these two cherubim um, whose, whose wingtips are, are touching. And that's, you know, God is in between those cherubim, right? Those cherubim are, are kneeling down and worshiping him. But it also takes on particular significance if we think about these two living creatures on either side of the manger um, worshiping Jesus, or at least acknowledging Jesus, right? And it really is fantastic when we think about that manger being a place for those animals to eat. And um, since antiquity, the ox and the ass have represented uh, images of um, Jewish and Gentile people, respectively. And so what we see in this nativity scene is Jesus being born and immediately being placed in a feeding trough as the true food of Jew and Gentile alike. That's like so, it's just so incredible. There's so much there. It's, it's so, it's awesome. Um, and I want to point out one more thing. So as someone who's born in a stable, probably a cave or maybe a cave, Jesus represents the margins, margins of society and he represents people on the margins of society and he's in solidarity with people on the margins of society. And they were, the Holy Family was obviously poor, but if you doubt that, look at what happens at the presentation of Jesus. Now, the presentation happens on the 40th day after birth, which is exactly why we celebrate this feast on the 40th day after Christmas in our church year. And at the presentation, Joseph and Mary bring forth their purification sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, the normal sacrifice mandated for the presentation sacrifice was a lamb and a young bird. Uh, the, the, the bird could be a pigeon or a turtle dove. But if the family was poor, the offering could just be two birds, either two turtle doves or two pigeons, and, and they could skip the lamb if they couldn't afford it. And the Holy Family presents the offering of the poor, the two birds. So this, this underscores to us that the Holy Family is poor and humble. Again, contrast that with Caesar Augustus, this emperor who was worthy of adoration. That's not how Jesus comes into the world. That's not how he presents himself to us. That's not how he comes to us. But he comes to us in a, in a hidden and humble and lowly way. Okay, now let's talk about the point number four, the Magi. This is especially appropriate as we uh, celebrated Epiphany earlier today on Sunday. And in some ways, the story of the visit of the Magi, I think, is one of the most mysterious of the embassy narratives. Who are these men? Where did they come from? How do they know about Jesus? And the text is largely silent on many of the details of these questions. But there are some important inferences that we can draw and in that in Benedict highlights for us in this book. The first is this. Benedict says, look, there are four meanings to the word magi. Even that word has some ambiguity to it. The first meaning is members of the Persian priestly caste. The second is possessors of supernatural knowledge. The third is magicians. And the fourth is deceivers and seducers. Um, there's an example of the last category in the book of Acts where a man is trying to basically manipulate the... Uh, um, uh, manipulate the work of the apostles and uh, claim it as his own and use magic and deception to do that. But Benedict says that these ones, these magi, were in the first category. They were some sort of priest. Maybe they weren't Persians exactly, but they were some sort of priestly caste. Um, they were secular priests, right? These were not Jewish priests. They were secular priests. But they nonetheless arrive at Christ and offer him due honor. Matthew, in his gospel, describes them as wise. And Benedict expounds on this by saying that, quote, they represent the inner dynamic of religion towards self-transcendence, which involves a search for truth, a search for the true God. Wisdom, then, serves to purify the message of science. The rationality of that message does not remain at the level of intellectual knowledge, but seeks understanding in its fullness, and so raises reason to its loftiest possibilities, end quote. 
So what Benedict is saying here is that these magi, the wise men, emphasis on the word wise, were prompted by their knowledge and understanding to journey toward God. So in that way, they represent, in a very broad way, the direction and culmination of human reason toward its ultimate fulfillment in God. So these men, probably astrologers, um, secular priests and some write, um, probably also very learned though, you know, according to the, the work of their own culture, um, quite possibly literate in the language of their day. And given all that, you might expect them to be very skeptical about things like um, a lowly child being born in a manger being worthy of adoration. But no, the insight here is that these men were truly wise and understood the right ordering of their wisdom and earthly knowledge and, um, and, and ordered it correctly in that way so that they could recognize the lowliest among us. And that's why uh, Matthew calls them wise, because they recognized the direction to which all of human reason ultimately points. Um, and that's why they arrived at Christ. That's how they found him. Now, the gifts they bring, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these are also meaningful as well. Um, <clears throat> they correspond to the threefold identity of, identity of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. The myrrh, of course, uh, was a, myrrh was a, uh, a, a perfume or an oil that was used to anoint um, bodies for burial. So the myrrh anticipates Jesus' death as a prophet rejected by his people. So there's the prophet element. The frankincense recognizes his priesthood. Of course, Jesus is the great high priest. Just look uh, all through the book of Hebrews for that. Um, and the gold is given to him by virtue of his kingship. So this little baby, the wise men recognize, is the one who is truly worthy, worthy of adoration. It's not the Caesar Augustus character. It's this little baby who arrived in a stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Now, this is super cool, though. Modern scholars apparently have identified a source of this possible knowledge about Christ's birth for the wise men as an actual celestial event. Um, the conjunction of planetary bodies, some combination of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, but at the very least of Jupiter, um, that occurred in the sky plausibly around the time of, of uh, Jesus' birth. Um, uh, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, uh, who's not a modern astronomer I recognize, but um, he uh, calculated this. And a more modern astronomer, Ferrari di Occhieppo, um, both developed variants of this theory. Um, and a German scholar also recently discovered a reference in Chinese chronological tables, um, plausibly around the time of Jesus' birth, of a bright star that was, quote, visible for quite a long time. So this very well could be the, uh, the planet Jupiter um, and some combination of Saturn and Mars in a celestial event, uh, maybe a conjunction of the planets that would appear very bright in the sky. Um, and this is really interesting, though, because if it was indeed Jupiter that was involved in this, in Babylonian cosmology, where these, these uh, magi very well may have been trained, the highest deity was represented by the planet Jupiter. Of course, we know now it's the largest planet in our solar system, so it makes sense. But this largest planet in the solar system, uh, the highest deity in the Babylonian cosmology, this was then pointing the way towards Christ. So at a fundamental level, this means that the very fabric of the cosmos, at its highest order, at its highest level, is showing itself to be subject to Christ. The planets are literally rearranged to point to his birth. And so this turns on its head the normal suspected order of things. Benedict writes, quote, It is not the star that determines a child's destiny. It is the child that directs the star. Isn't that so cool? So I, before I read this book, I did not know that there was an actual, you know, that we could, we could deduce or at least hypothesize with good evidence that there was an actual celestial event that could have led the wise men uh, in the direction of Bethlehem, but, but here it is. And what this event could have meant for the wise men too, that you know, their highest thing in the cosmos, their Jupiter, 
um, is pointing them towards a little baby in a stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem. So cool. Okay, now we come to our fifth thing. So we did John the Baptist, we did the Annunciation of Jesus, we did the Nativity scene, and then we did the Magi. The fifth thing I want to talk about is the Logos. I said we would come back to this when I talked about it briefly in the Annunciation, um, and I think it's important to talk about here because there's so much going on here, and there's so much to understand here when we talk about the Incarnation and what it means for us as Catholic Christians. Now, this is what Paul writes in, in uh, the first letter to Colossians when he discusses how all things in heaven and on earth were created in Christ and are subject to him. Let me um, just read you a brief excerpt from there. Colossians chapter 1. All right, I'm starting here at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay. Now, this idea of the Logos, very important. If you look at the definition of the Logos in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'll find, I think, a pretty adequate definition for at least a starting point here for our purposes. And the Encyclopedia Britannica says that the Logos is, quote, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. So this is exactly what Paul is after in Colossians 1.17, when he writes that, quote, in Christ, all things hold together. Now, there's only one place in this book that Benedict wrote in which he talks about Christ as the Logos. But when he does, he points out that when the Logos became man, the context of time and place also became part of him. So Jesus, the Logos of God, this divine reason that orders everything else in the cosmos and gives it form and gives it meaning, this Logos, this Word of God, is the incarnate, fleshly, divine reason that orders all of creation. And not just that, but it's also immanentized. That means it's existing in time and place because God does take on our flesh. God does take on our nature. God does take on our poverty. God does take on our lowliness. God does take on our humility. God takes on our situation. And so in doing that, this logos, this divine reason, God, fully God, becomes fully man. So the takeaway here is this, that our God, although he is the first mover who holds all things together, from the most distant and undetected stars to the atoms that make up our cups of coffee, this God took flesh, assumed our humanity, and lived and died among us. He entered into our frailty. He entered into our time. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our world. And in doing so, he opens for us the opportunity to participate in his divine life. That is the miracle of Christmas, friends. The miracle of Christmas is not that we can uh, wish for worldwide peace, that we can give gifts to each other, that we can sing carols around a Christmas tree. All of those things are good things. But the miracle of Christmas is the incarnation of God. The miracle of Christmas is that this logos, this divine reason that orders everything and gives it meaning, this logos entered into our existence in time and then place. And he did it about 2,000 years ago on the outskirts of a little town called Bethlehem with a poor little family. And he would go on to save the world. Doesn't that give you chills? It's so cool. That is the miracle of Christianity. And to accept anything less is to cheapen what Christmas is all about. I hope you enjoy this discussion of the embassy narratives. I really encourage you to pick up this trilogy 
And if you are interested in doing so, go ahead and pick up the Holy Week one because I'm going to be doing probably three episodes throughout Lent talking about the Holy Week book specifically. So it'll, it'll be kind of a book club and we can read it together. Um, so pick that up. It is Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week by Benedict the Sixteenth. If you have any comments for um, how I did on this podcast or have any questions, any comments, anything I missed, anything I got wrong, please uh, please reach out to me, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. Thanks for being with me as I uh, continue to sort of uh, recover from this cold and nurse my voice back to health. I appreciate you bearing with me, um, and I look forward to bringing you more content very soon. And just once again, I want to ask you to help me um, in my prayers, pray with me um, for Creedal Catholic and for God to make clear to me how I can expand this ministry if he wants me to do that at all. I have lots of good ideas, uh, lots of things I want to do this year with this ministry, but I only want to do them um, if God wants me to do them. So please pray with me about clarity for direction in that. And if you have ideas, um, if you're interested in helping out, if you uh, just want to reach out and let me know what this has meant to you and how I can do better, please do. Zach, Z-A-C, at CredoCatholic.com. Thank you so much. God bless you.